Open your Bibles if you have them in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 33 to 46 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Over the years as a, a homeowner, I have come to appreciate and actually enjoy and even, you might say, love things like taking care of a yard and trees. I've mentioned sometime before that, you know, when I was a kid, my parents used to come home, we'd come home from wherever, and my parents would spend the next 30 minutes inspecting all of their trees in their yard, and I thought, what are you doing? This is so, would you please unlock the door and let me in? And now I find myself as a homeowner enjoying that activity of like just looking at the yard and taking care of the grass and oh there's a bear patch here I need to fix that and doing all these kinds of things and don't have a lot of time for it and am by no means proficient at it but I do enjoy it and it's always amazing to me that when you find somebody who is a horticulturist somebody who really is a good gardener or good arborist likes to take care of trees or their yard there is one thing that all of them have when it comes to their plants and that is patience you cannot be an impatient gardener. It is, it is nearly impossible. The gardener goes out every day and tends to the soil and then sows the seed and then waters and then fertilizes for days that join up into weeks, that join up into months with little to nothing to show for it. And then all of a sudden, one day, something sprouts forth from the ground, and still, it's really nothing. It's just, it's something that could easily be taken out by a, you know, disease or something like that. And eventually, one day, it may be years from then, there is some sort of fruit that has been produced. But long before the fruit ever comes up from the ground, there is an abundance of patience. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give another parable to the religious leaders. Second that we've been looking at in just the last couple of weeks, the second of three, where he's going to illustrate for them exactly what is about to take place. He's going to tell them what is about to happen. And it seems as though, on the first reading at least, that the patience of God has run its course. Let's read our passage this morning, Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruit, the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've read your word. We pray that it would now be sown deep into our hearts and bear fruit. For that, we depend on your mercy to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. Pray you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our passage and in the passages that precede it, we know a couple of things are true. First, Jesus is on a crusade. He is after His people to save them from their sins. We heard this all the way back in Matthew, the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1. Angel tells Joseph, He's going to save His people from their sins. That's been the crusade that Jesus has been on for some time. And here the people of Israel have been gathered and are continuing to gather year after year at the temple here in Jerusalem. They've memorized things like the Ten Commandments. Maybe even some of them have memorized the entire Bible. They've attended countless festivals time after time. And yet, as we saw a few weeks ago, they are in the temple here Exchanging money like they're on the New York Stock Exchange instead of praying, which is the reason the temple is there. So the people, it is clear, are in desperate need of salvation. They just do not understand the situation that they're in. But you notice, the temple hasn't provided it for them. They've been coming to the temple year after year, and it hasn't provided for them salvation. Because here they are in this scene when Jesus walks into the temple and turns over the tables just a few passages before where we are now. They're in there like it's the New York Stock Exchange. Like the worship of God isn't supposed to happen. Like they're not supposed to be bowing their hearts in prayer and repentance. People coming to worship at the temple, and yet they are the ones in need of salvation, yet they are the ones who think they have it. Jesus is on a crusade to save his people. But we also notice that he's on a crusade against the Jewish leaders. There is a Jewish system of religious observance that he is on a crusade against. These are the people that are coming to town, if you will, to celebrate these festivals. They're they're doing all of these things. They're going through these rote behaviors time after time after time, and yet it hasn't led them to produce any of the fruits of the kingdom. They're not doing what is actually what actually God requires of his people. What God actually wants or desires of his people. And these Pharisees and Sadducees, these scribes and elders, whom Jesus is talking to in this run of passages all the way back to chapter 21, these, these people, these leaders that he is talking to have led them there. They've been the ones who have been producing this from the people, you see. 
The New York Stock Exchange atmosphere there at the temple is there at their discretion. They're the ones orchestrating this whole ordeal. So going all the way back to chapter 19 and on through the end of the book, Jesus is confronting that system. That system that would seek to have religious observance trump actual obedience and worship of God. Jesus is coming in on a crusade against that whole system. It's represented by the temple. It's represented by its leaders. But all of the people who are following blindly are guilty as well. We're in the second of three parables that Jesus is giving. There's just a run of three parables that He's giving to the the scribes and elders. And each one of them is an attack on these Jewish leaders. Each one of them is an indictment on them. All three of these parables have really a very similar message. They're different, but they're also very similar in that all of them are going to have a message of faith and a message of judgment in them. Depicting what is actual faith and then what is coming to them in judgment. In the text that Jeremy preached last week, we saw that faith is repentance of sin. But judgment is coming to the Pharisees. Why? Precisely because they have a lack of repentance of sin. The kingdom of heaven is represented as a high wall with a wide gate. Those that approach the wall in repentance and faith in Jesus walk through the wide gate. But for those who want to come into the kingdom of God some other way, the wall is high and impenetrable. And so what do we see in the gospel, throughout the gospel, but that Jesus goes to the sinners, the tax collectors, and so on, and they come to Him in repentance of sin. Yet the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders who are watching on the outside go, why are, why are these people welcomed into your kingdom? It's precisely because they repent. The, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees don't want to repent, so they don't get the wide gate. They get the wall. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to keep warning them by turning Israel's history into a parable. And so there are two aspects that he's highlighting here about God in this parable, and I, I, want, to, I want us to see each one in its turn. The first aspect of God that I want, I want you to see in this parable is the patience of God, which is what Jesus is illustrating for them right now, the patience of God. So here's this wealthy landowner who takes his property and he turns it into a vineyard and he, he then lets it out to some tenants who will benefit from the property. This is not a lot like rental property is today. This would have been uh, an agreement between the landowner and the tenant where the tenant would be responsible to keep up the property, uh, to basically take care of the vineyard, to produce all of the fruit in the vineyard and really do the bulk of the farming and they were responsible to tend the crops, and, and essentially they're going to be the gardeners of this landowner's land. And the landowner and the tenant would work out an agreement where there would be a percentage given to the landowner, and he would take that percentage as part of his you know, wealth for owning the land, and the tenant would get what was left of the harvest when it came harvest time, and he would sell all of that 
to basically reap the benefits of being the tenant and doing a lot of the work. Where it's very similar if you've known anybody who's taken care of cattle but didn't own any land. They kind of put their cattle on somebody else's land and the landowner gets the tax benefit and the, the, the cattle rancher has a place to put his cattle. So kind of a very similar thing. But if you look at verse 34 and 35 in this vineyard, the, the tenants don't really do that. They renege upon the agreement and they choose instead to squat on the property as if it's theirs. They're going to take what doesn't belong to them. And so the harvest time comes and the vineyard owner sends out his servants and he's going to collect his portion of the harvest. But instead of giving the landowner what is due to him, they, he, Jesus says, beat one servant, they kill another, they stone another, he sends more servants, and they continue to do the same thing over and over. And finally, in verse 37, the master sends his own son, but the tenants take the son outside of the vineyard, and they kill him. Now, this is not really like one of Jesus' typical parables. The reason is because almost everything in this parable represents something. It almost is more like an allegory, if you're familiar with reading allegories, like Pilgrim's Progress or something along those lines. It functions a lot more like an allegory. Jesus is actually retelling Israel's history in the form of a, a parable where God has sent to the nation of Israel time after time, prophet after prophet, as a word of warning to the nation of Israel to lead them to repentance. But how do we know that's what Jesus means here? Because Jesus doesn't actually, if you notice, really explain the parable at all. He just assumes they understand it. He doesn't really go into a deep explanation of what he means. It just says that they understood what he was talking about, that he was talking about them. The reason is because this is borrowed, Jesus' parable is borrowed from Isaiah 5, 1 to 6. In Isaiah 5, 1 to 6, he says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Does it sound familiar? But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So Isaiah is singing this song about the Lord's vineyard, and it's, it's about the Lord's care for the nation of Israel, how He has taken them along and how he, was, he has tended to them and how He has cared for them. And he even goes on to say in verse 7, the verse right after what I just read, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant planting. So in Isaiah, it's explained. This is the house of Judah. This is who I'm talking about. The men of Israel. That's who I'm talking about. So it's clear 
from our, in our passage in, with Isaiah that Jesus is borrowing the imagery here in the Lord's vineyard, talking about Israel and Judah. He's borrowing that here and updating it in his parable. It's most likely why Matthew tells us in verse 45 that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. The parable, Jesus is saying, still holds true and is actually being fulfilled in Jesus' day. And as stewards of God's garden, these leaders were that he's talking to, they were stewards of this garden. And they're picking up on what Jesus is putting down. They're starting to understand what he's talking about. We're the stewards of the garden that you're talking about. We're squatting on God's property. This is His garden, and we've taken advantage of it. We haven't led the people into righteousness and obedience, right? But this gets to the key difference in Isaiah's song versus Jesus' parable. Isaiah's song is talking about the nation of Israel. You're you're all disobedient. You're all gone astray. You've, You've all done this. Jesus is taking that image and zeroing it in right on the religious leaders. You. You led them here. This is what you were doing as a tenant of God's field. This is His people. And you sat on this property. And this is what you led them to. This is the kind of fruit production that you led. Wild grapes, essentially. In Isaiah's song, the vineyard doesn't produce the kind of fruit that God desired. That's not what he was looking for, wild grapes. And in Jesus' parable, the religious leaders thought they'd steal the land and beat the messengers that are coming to the harvest. They thought they'd create a New York Stock Exchange right there in the middle of the temple, and it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't offend the Lord. Either way, in Isaiah's song or Jesus' parable, the landowner was shortchanged in that he didn't get the crop that he was expecting. So Jesus poses the question to the religious leaders, what will he do to those tenants? And of course, they see the parable, they answer in verse 41, he's going to naturally put them to death. He's going to kick them out of the vineyard and he's going to give it to other tenants who will give him his fruit in their seasons. But do you see the the first issue that Jesus is getting at here? He's telling them, the Lord has been abundantly patient with Israel. He has sent them messenger after messenger and warning after warning to its leadership in spite of their fruitlessness. He has warned them time and time again. He has sent them prophet after prophet and they ignored or even worse, killed all of them. Notice, though, the importance of the fruit that belongs to the Lord. It's the fruit that He has pursued from His people. It's the fruit that He wants from His people. It's a word mentioned twice in verse 34. Fruit is verse 34, once in verse 41, and again in verse 43. Four times in this short parable, God is after fruit. That's what He wants from his people. His leaders are in charge of giving them the word that it would produce fruit in their lives. What is this fruit that he wants from his people? What is it? Jeremy preached 
couple of weeks ago, it's the fruit of repentance of sin. It's the fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist at the beginning of the book of Matthew? Baptizing in the river. And he looks out there and he sees the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders there on the bank of the river. And he says, who warned you? He tells them, bear fruit in keeping with, the, with repentance. He tells them he's coming and his axe is laid to the root and he's going to chop down anyone who is not bearing fruit. He's going to prune his garden. He's going to remove from his garden anything that is not bearing fruit. The very concept of bearing fruit in the Christian life is the fruit of confessing sin and holy living. That is, living in repentance. Remember just a few weeks ago, after Jesus rode into town on a donkey, he goes into the temple complex and he goes in and he turns over the tables. But do you remember why he does that? I've, I've made reference to it already, but do you remember why he does that? Because here are his people gathered together in the temple. And instead of devoting themselves to prayers of confession and repentance, they're throwing a party. And they've been led by the religious leaders to do so. And Jesus goes through and He starts turning over the tables and He starts calling them a den of robbers. Why? Because they've squatted on God's property, the nation of Israel, and they've stolen what is rightfully His. Those prayers are His. Those moments of worship and celebration, those are His. He's the landowner. Those belong to Him. They've co-opted it, and they've taken it for themselves and changed it into something that it is not. In the passage that follows right after that, the nation of Israel then is represented by this fruitless fig tree that Jesus curses, and it withers. They're fruitless, the nation is, precisely because in them there is no remorse for sin. There is no true worship. There is no repentance in their lives. All it is, is rote behaviors that are designed to look like repentance. But in actuality, it's nothing. In spite of them squatting on His ter territory, what has God done? This has been going on, not just in Jesus' day. This has been going on for a long time. Go all the way back to Moses. It's been going on. What has God done? Did He come in and wipe them out immediately? Nope. Time after time, messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, urging them to come to repentance. Telling them, you're dangling over the pit of hell and you don't even know it. Come to repentance. The fruit that has been demanded of God's people from the beginning has been the fruit of repentance. I, I worry sometimes, just as an aside, about churches on the whole in America. Just consider sometimes what, what goes on in churches and what 
kind of experience we often create in our worship services. There are literally churches that have smoke machines. Can you imagine? Why would we do that? Churches that lower the pastor down from the rafters have literally seen it. Why would we do that? Because what they're after is attention. It's not praise of God. It's not worship of God. It's worship of man. All we want is eyeballs. I, don't, I spend most of my time trying not to go viral, all right? I don't, I don't want that. Why would we turn the worship of God into some sideshow carnival like that? Because we're not really worshiping God, that's why. We're worshiping feelings. We're worshiping emotion. And we only leave satisfied when we have that heightened emotion. We get to that mountaintop. Oh man, worship really happened in there. Why? Listen, if you're truly a disciple of Jesus, especially if you've been a disciple for any length of time, there should be a long arc of your life that bends towards repentance. If you look at any day or week or month or year of any of our lives, there's going to be the appearance at some point of disobedience. Where we're walking away, where we're living in rebellion, where we're turning away from the Lord. There's going to be that. It's going to look like a, like a good stock over time, right? You zoom into a year, it may not look so hot. But if you zoom out in the life of a Christian, to the life as a whole, there's going to be a steady incline towards growth over the whole of that life. In other words, it's true that you repent of your sins and it's becoming truer slowly over time. You know what that is? The, the dips and the peaks? God's patience with you over time. That's Him continuing to remind you sermon after sermon, worship service after worship service, with friend after friend. Repent. Don't hold on to sin. It promises a lot on the front end, and it never delivers. It will always leave you wanting. That's his patience with you. Just look at your life. Zoom out of your life for just a second. Look at those patterns of rebellion. They're certainly there in mine. That's his patience. It's a marker of his patience with you. And it's true here. Jesus is reminding them in this parable. God has been abundantly patient with you. Even after you have killed his servants brings us to the second thing that we need to see in this is the justice of God. 
There's the patience of God on the front end, and then there's the justice of God on the back end. The scribes and the chief priests have, have, put, have answered, have just answered Jesus. And they, they've answered him correctly. That the owner is going to put those wretches to a miserable death and let them out of the vineyard, uh, and let, let out the vineyard to, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And so Jesus takes that answer and immediately transitions to this quote of this psalm, Psalm 118, 22 to, 30, 22 to 23 is what he quotes there. And he, he basically asks them in verse 42, Have you never read, which is saturated with irony? And there's one big reason. You've got you to think about this for just a second. They're here in Jerusalem to celebrate which holiday, which festival? You remember? Passover? Psalm 118 is quoted every Passover. Psalm 118 is quoted every single Passover. They are there in Jerusalem, and they will be citing that psalm at the end of these festivities. Do they know? Have they ever read in the Scriptures Psalm 118? This isn't like you and me. When somebody brings up some passage in the Old Testament, and you're like, I don't know if I've ever read that. Pretty sure God snuck that one into the Bible at some, pl- some point when I was sleeping. No, 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 no. This is cited every single year, this psalm. So he asks them, have you never read? It's funny. It's sad, but it, it, it's humorous. In that psalm, Israel is celebrating in Psalm 118. Because they were the stone, Israel was, that the builders, that is the nations, rejected. Israel was the stone that the builders, the nations, just kind of threw away and thought, They're, what, what are these little small, terrible country? They've nothing in them. We can roll over them, you know, like they're nothing. And God has granted them victory in battle. That's what they're celebrating in Psalm 118. In spite of the fact that we seem like to the nations, to the builders, we are nothing, the stone that they rejected has actually become the most important stone in all the land because we are protected by the Lord. Now, this is where it's helpful to think back through the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. We've been, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for some time now. And I think it would be, if you've joined us somewhere in the middle, it would be helpful to go back. It's a lot of sermons, I recognize, okay? But it'd be helpful to go back through and listen through some of those sermons if you're coming in on the middle of this because we've, we've been talking about the significance of what Matthew is doing and the themes that he is building there. And very early on, he is showing how Jesus is Israel in a microcosm, in a singular person. Jesus is representing the nation of Israel. So Jesus is the true and perfect Israel. And He is doing what Israel should have done but failed to do. He is doing it for them in their place. And now what's happening is the nation of Israel, the builders, if you will, are rejecting Him, the stone, true and perfect Israel. But what God is going to do in the resurrection is He's going to take this little stone that the entire nation of Israel has rejected and He's going to make it the keystone for salvation for all of His people. 
He's the fulfillment of this passage. Do you understand what Jesus is also saying? He's saying that he's the son from the parable. He's the one that's going to be taken outside the city and he's going to be killed from people that have stolen from God. Now, because God has done this, because God is going to do this, because He is going to resurrect Jesus from the dead, the one who the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, if you stumble over Jesus, judgment is coming on your head. It will crush you. You trip on it, you'll be dashed into pieces. If it falls on you, it's going to crush you. God has made Jesus the center point of salvation history. So all of it depends on what you do with Jesus. You ever notice that every person that comes to your door knocks on your door and tries to lead you to another cult always changes Jesus. they got to change Jesus in some way. That's our job, is to help them see. when they come, You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know every verse in Scripture. You don't have to be confused by everything that they're presenting to you. You've just got to help them see how they've twisted Jesus. This is what you've done. You've, you've, you've totally twisted Jesus. It's where the creeds of ancient yore really come in handy for us. They teach us who Jesus really is. Keep us from heresy. And they help us to instill that to other people. That's, that's all free. He's made him the center point of salvation history. That's the point. They've changed Jesus. Now, that's not all that Jesus is doing in this parable. He's doing a lot of things. Remember just a couple of weeks ago, the chief priests and the elders, Jeremy was preaching on this, the chief priests and the elders asked Jesus in verse 23, you can look back up there, they asked Jesus in verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus told them in that passage, I'm not going to tell you. He would, they wouldn't answer a simple question for him about who, who John was. And so he said, well, then I'm not going to answer you either. But in this parable, he's telling them whose authority he's done all these things. If he's the son, he says, it's by God's authority. I operate on his behalf. I'm the son in the parable. I'm here to bring this kind of judgment on the nation of Israel for their long history of abuse of the prophets of God, for their long history of faithlessness, and ultimately for their failure to see me as the Messiah. As a result, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them, and it's going to be given to a people that are producing the fruit of repentance. So there's two steps in that. He's taking away the kingdom from those that are not producing its fruit, and he's giving it to a people that are producing his fruit. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Two, two moves, okay? The first is taking it away from people not producing fruit. What is, he, what is he talking about there? He's talking about 70 AD, some 40 years after he tells them this. The Roman army is going to surround Jerusalem and it's going to lay siege to that temple. The one Jesus is coming to battle, and the religious system that he's coming to take down, the Romans are going to mar march in in 70 AD, surround Jerusalem, and destroy that temple until there is nothing but rubble on the ground. 
In fact, in a few chapters, Jesus is going to warn his disciples that that day is coming. And that when it comes, they need to run. Because it's going to be treacherous. That day in Jerusalem was, or that, that period of time in Jerusalem was absolutely crazy and hectic. All of Jerusalem starved. Tales of women even having to eat their children because they were starving so much and to keep them from crying. That's how bad that day was. That time period was. But it's going to be bringing the religious system of the Jews to a screeching halt because he's going to destroy that temple. He's going to tear it down to the ground. And so their kingdom is quite literally going to be taken away from them where they will have it no more. There won't be one stone of that temple left unturned, he's going to say. And in the rubble, this is the other part of this, he's giving it to someone else. In the rubble of the temple there's going to be left one cornerstone. It's going to be sitting upon a foundation that he's going to build out of that cornerstone of the apostles of the New Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, the structure that's going to be built there in the place of that temple is going to be built on the foundation of those apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. But that building that's going to be produced there are the people that are producing its fruit. It's not a real physical building. It's a spiritual building. It's made up of people who are going to be producing its fruit. The fruit of faith in Jesus Christ as King and Savior who are going to gather every Sunday morning and who are going to bow their hearts in worship and repentance of sin and exercising faith in Christ, they're going to go out on behalf of His kingdom and share His gospel. It's going to be made up of people that are actually producing its fruit. And it's not going to be a building that replaces the Jews, but one that incorporates Jew and Gentile together into one body under a new head not Adam, but Christ. So in this one building that he's going to replace, or that he's going to put in place, this people of God, there's going to be both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and together they are going to constitute the people of God. He's going to make one new man, one true Israel out of both Jew and Gentile don't believe me, believe Paul. Ephesians 2, really you could go all the way back to 11, but I chose 19 to 22. You could go all the way back to the beginning of the section where he says this, but Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, he says, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul's essentially preaching the same sermon that I am from that text. Jesus is doing this right here. And he's telling the leaders that he is going to do this. He is judging the unbelieving in Israel and it all hinges on what they do with the Son. 
The last straw, you might say. And what are they going to do? Well, like the tenants in the parable, they're going to take the son outside of the city where they are going to crucify him and they're going to put him to death. And in so doing, they are going to seal their fate. Because it would appear that the patience of God has run out with them. But that's not actually true. You need to understand that God is always patient with His children. With His children, His patience never runs out. Well, then what's going on here? It looks like His patience has run out. It has. But Jesus is saying His patience has run out with His enemies. Not with His children. This is what you have to understand. These people that He's talking to are not His children. The people that have followed these leaders are not His children. How do you know? Because they are not producing fruit. That's how you know. Fruit of repentance is not in them. It's not there. So if they're not producing His fruit, they are not His children. The unbelieving seed inside the nation of Israel, in fact, inside the world, says that they are Jews, but are actually a synagogue of Satan, to use Jesus' words from Revelation 3.9. The authority of Jesus' kingdom is going to be given to those who are producing the fruit of repentance and faith. Now, let's apply this for just a second. What does this mean for us as individual Christians? It's very simple. Produce the fruit of repentance. That's what it means. For you as a Christian, production of the fruit of repentance, name of the game. So what it actually means to believe in Jesus, it is to confess your sin and to turn from it and trust that Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years ago is enough to pay for your sin, to cancel the record of debt that you owe to God. That is what it means to have faith in Christ, is to trust that His sacrifice is enough to restore my relationship with God. And that through Him, you have been reconciled to God. But it's easier said than done. You might find that there are many times in your life where sin wraps its tentacles around your leg and just continues to pull you down and ensnares you. And that could be anything, any, any sin. I'm going to choose a few here, not meaning to step on any toes, because if there are toes to be stepped on, they're mine, trust me. Lust, pride, gossip, anger, not extending forgiveness to somebody else. Lots of sins that we struggle with and then entangle us. But there are a couple of dangers here that I want us to look at just, just briefly as we think about producing the fruit of repentance. One is that some sins won't come to your attention very easily. You ever notice that? Some sins you can commit, and you can go on committing quite happily and never really think about the fact that you have committed them. Take pride and gossip, for example. Sometimes very difficult to identify in your life. You can gossip about someone, and you ever notice you can always find a listening ear? 
You can talk about somebody, and even inside the church, you can find a listening ear. You can be prideful, and you can surround yourself by yes men and not ever really know that you're prideful or it not be really called to your attention. You can hold a grudge against somebody. You can forever cut them out of your life, and maybe no one will ever say anything about it to you. This is a real danger for us because we end up getting trapped in these patterns of sin and nobody ever brings our attention to it. And what they do is they stunt your spiritual growth. You're never going to grow as a Christian as long as you're continuing to engage in these kinds of sins. It's going to be that downturn, if you will, in your life. This is one reason why spiritual disciplines of reading Scripture, prayer, are so important. The Scriptures train us in righteousness. And so when you open the Bible in the morning, you're sitting across the breakfast table from the Lord of all creation, and if you've got food on your face, He tends to let you know it. Particularly if you read the Scriptures and you're looking for ways in which I'm really like these sinful people I find here. I I tend to like to make myself the hero, right? I'm like Moses and everybody else is the sinner's. Don't do that. Make yourself the griper in, in, in Moses' army and, and you'll, you'll see a lot more of yourself all right, in the Scriptures for sure. But the Lord will let you know that you have food on your face so that you can repent of some of those sins. You can confess them. You can grow. But it's also really vital to surround yourself with Christian friends that are going to say to you, hey, that's gossip. When's the last time a friend said that to you? Or that says, hey, you're being really prideful right now. Or that says, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, I think you're withholding forgiveness from this person. And you really should be forgiving them. Look at what the Scriptures say about the person that withholds forgiveness. Forgiveness is going to be withheld from them. Do you have friends like that? Are you that friend? If you be that friend, other friends tend to want to hold you accountable. <laughs> That's one way to start, is to just start holding your Christian friends accountable, and they will in turn do likewise. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Producing the fruit of repentance. So one danger we're in is that we can commit sin that we're constantly unaware of, that we need to build into our life habits and patterns help us to understand what that sin is, to confront it, to turn from it. But the second danger is that you can feel so guilty over sin that you're embarrassed to confess it to others, to other Christians, that you're embarrassed to even bring it up in your prayer life before the Lord. These are the exact opposite sins. The sins that are just thrown in your face time and time again. You feel wrecked by guilt and you think to yourself, He doesn't want to hear from me again. Surely He doesn't want to hear about this same sin that I continue to struggle with over and over and over again. You've ever been lost in that thought? I found this particularly to be the case in the area of lust. Pornography is rampant in our society. And it is devouring men and women alike. At almost the same rate. I know many of you think this is a man's struggle. It's not. 
Especially it's not anymore. This is a people struggle. But it's the kind of sin that's very apparent to you. You know that you have committed it. And there is an addictive nature to it. And so it continues to pull you in. It beckons you to return. But the danger here is the feeling that no matter how many times I keep committing this and keep returning to the Lord, I have to ask myself at some point, how many times can I ask for forgiveness before He doesn't welcome my return anymore? How many times can I keep engaging in this before He just says, you know what, I'm done with you? So what happens? You ignore it for days and weeks and months. And then even for days, weeks, months, maybe even years, you are inconsistent. Or maybe even your spiritual disciplines in your life are non-existent altogether. They're just not there at all. No Bible reading, no prayer. Maybe even church attendance just goes by the wayside. But there is something fundamental that you are misunderstanding. All of your sins. Yes, all of those times where you have consulted the computer screen late at night and all the rest of sins, they were all accounted for when Jesus died on the cross. He already knew them. Every single one of them. He accounted for all of them. So He already knows them. He's already suffered for them. Don't call God a liar by pretending that there's nothing in between you and Him. There's food on your face. No, there's not. Think of the absurdity of that. Of course not. Confess them. So you're also in the process of confessing these sins or of of refusing to confess them, refusing the spiritual disciplines, refusing prayer and reading of Scripture and church and all of those, and Christian friends and all of those things, you're cutting short the repentance process. Because see, when, when, when repentance, when confession of sin leads you to the reading of Scriptures and the, attend, uh, the attendance in worship and the being around Christian friends and all of those kinds of things, it's designed to produce in you the full measure of repentance that God has for you. But so often what we do is we just come before the Lord, we confess our sins, and we think that's it. And we hope that by the next time, I will have learned my lesson and I can try harder. But that's not the full measure of repentance. Repentance starts with confession, but it doesn't end there. You won't begin to produce the fruit of faith until you not only turn from your sin, but you actually start walking in the opposite direction. The reason that so many people are addicted to these kinds of sins is because they bring them joy. It's light, it's momentary, but it's joy. And in the moment, they can't fathom any other joy greater than that one. And that's all sin, really. Now, it's filled with a bunch of junk on the back end. A lot of remorse and a lot of guilt but in the moment, it brings joy because as it turns out, our hearts are joy magnets. That's all they do is look for joy. We follow what makes us happy. And so often, counsel for people who are dealing with that 
comes down to basically just remove everything from your life. Remove TV, remove phone, remove everything. And it's true that you need to hinder your access to these things, but that's not enough. It's not even the most important thing. Your heart needs something better to be attracted to. That's the only thing that keeps you away from temptation. It's when your heart would actually be sacrificing joy to go to the sin. Your heart needs something better to be attracted to. You can't just distance yourself from temptation. You have to do that. But that can't be it. You have to stimulate growth in Christ. And the devil has convinced you to avoid the Bible, to avoid prayer. Don't tell any other Christians what you're struggling with because God forbid you know that they'll judge you. When in all actuality, that has cut you off from actual freedom and true repentance. Because what you don't realize is that the Christians that are refusing to confess, uh, the Christians that are refusing to confess to the people that are around them, to their pastor, the people that you're afraid to tell, we've all been there before. We've all been in that situation. We've done those things before. We've known freedom. We've known repentance. We've experienced greater joy in Christ. Producing the fruit of repentance is pushing closer to those things. It's pursuing those things. It's pushing harder into those things that you know are going to, in the end, produce joy. He's told you what they are. His Word. His body. He's told you what they are. That's what they're designed to produce. Remember, the Lord is patient and He's a master gardener with us all. He never runs out of patience for His children. He's a master gardener with us all. And over time, He's going to produce fruit. Our goal as a church body is to be patient with each other while He does. Stimulate one another towards good works towards repentance, towards a life of holiness. This is what we're about as a church. That's our purpose. That's the people that are producing kingdom fruits that he's giving this to. Producing the fruit of repentance. Because remember, it's his patience and it's his kindness that are meant to lead us to repentance, to cultivate the fruit of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be true of us. We know that in your kingdom there is fullness of joy. We know in our minds that better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Yet so often we find ourselves entangled in sin, but Lord, would you convince us through your people, through your word, reminding us when we come here to worship, would you convince us that in your presence is fullness of joy? Would you convince us that in your word is fullness of joy? Would you convince us that there is actual joy here, better than can be had, on the internet, 
better than can be had in various kinds of sins that we engage in, better than can be had anywhere else. Will you convince us of that? In Jesus' name, amen.